Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Friday, September 2nd, 2022. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, the iPhone install base has surpassed the Android install base in the U.S. for the first time basically since Android began. Apple settled with a developer for the first time any of us can remember. Meta signs a VR chip deal with Qualcomm, the really good and really annoying bits of the new USB standard, and of course, the weekend long read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Happy headlines for Apple going into its big week next week. According to CounterPoint, the iPhone active installed base overtook Android to gain more than 50% market share of the U.S. smartphone market in Q2, up from just 35% market share in 2019, making this the highest market share the iPhone has had in the smartphone market since 2007, quoting the Financial Times. The 50% landmark, the iPhone's highest share since it launched in 2007, was first passed in the quarter ending in June, according to data from CounterPoint Research. Some 150 devices using Google's Android operating system, led by Samsung and Lenovo, accounted for the rest. Operating systems are like religions, never significant changes, but over the past four years, the flow has consistently been Android to iOS, said CounterPoint's research director Jeff Fieldhack. This is a big milestone that we could see replicated in other affluent countries across the globe, end quote. The numbers are based on smartphones in use, known as the Active Installed Base, what Apple Finance Chief Luca Mestri dubbed the engine for our company in a July earnings call. This is a wider and more meaningful category than new phone shipments, which fluctuate from quarter to quarter and have already demonstrated Apple's newfound strength. The active install base takes into account the millions of people bought into Apple's ecosystem through the used phone market, as well as those who use iPhones purchased years ago. Ben Wood, analyst at CCS Insights, said, It's not that we're seeing a big year where Apple grows its market share 10 or 15%, but there's this slow burn where they quietly just grab more share every year, end quote. Android-powered smartphones first went on sale in 2008, a year after the iPhone debuted, and overtook the iOS installed base in 2010, according to NPD Group. In the three previous years, Apple never had anything near 50% market share, as sales were dominated by Nokia, Motorola, Windows, and BlackBerry." According to court filings, Apple settled with Flick-type developer Costa Eleftheriou. The lawsuit alleged Apple rejected his watch app and then approved ripoff apps on the App Store, so-called Sherlocking, as the process is known. Quoting TechCrunch, The case had been a high-profile example of developer discontent with Apple's App Store business. Many developers have become dissatisfied not only with the requirement to pay Apple commissions on their own sales, something Epic Games is suing over currently, but also how the App Store model itself incentivizes scammers to rip off and profit from legitimate developers' work. But few take these matters to court, as Elefteru has done. His complaint alleged that not only had Apple rejected his flick-type Apple Watch keyboard app from the App Store, it then approved competitor keyboard apps and others that used an integrated version of flick-type keyboard to publish to the App Store. This seemingly contradicted Apple's claim that the flick-type keyboard offered a, quote, poor user experience, given that Apple's own app review team was greenlighting the same technology when integrated into other apps like Nano for Reddit, Chirp for Twitter, Watch Chat for WhatsApp and Lens for Instagram. 
In addition, when the keyboard app was allowed to re-enter the App Store, its early success made it a target for App Store scammers who launched less usable competitors boosted by fake ratings and reviews. As a result, FlickType's own revenue dropped from $130,000 in its first month to just $20,000 as consumers went for the better-rated alternatives, the developer said. Following the filing of the case last year, the two parties participated in court calls with a judge, the court docket shows, including as recently as this spring. A request for dismissal of the lawsuit was subsequently filed on July 21, 2022, after Apple and Eleftheru's business came to an agreement. Eleftheru was unable to comment on the terms of the settlement. Apple was not immediately able to comment on the dismissal either. However, it's hard to imagine the developer would have agreed to dismiss this case if terms were not at least somewhat agreeable, given his ongoing criticism of Apple's App Store business and the hardships developers face, end quote. Quoting Michael Love on Twitter, Congratulations to Kelifteru, but also the fact that Apple settled this, in spite of the hundreds of other lawsuits it's likely to invite, suggests that their lawyers are not upbeat about their prospects at trial, end quote. Meta has agreed a deal with Qualcomm to produce custom Snapdragon chips optimized for its Quest VR devices, though the chips will not be exclusive to Meta. Quoting Reuters, Engineering and product teams of both companies will work together to produce the chips powered by Qualcomm's Snapdragon platforms, they said in a statement. The agreement shows the dependency of Meta, known as Facebook until last year, on Qualcomm's technology even as it tries to develop custom silicon of its own for its virtual, augmented, and mixed reality devices. Unlike mobile phones, building VR brings novel multidimensional challenges in spatial computing, cost, and form factor, Meta Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg said in a video message. The chipsets produced through the collaboration will not be exclusive to Meta, but will be optimized specifically for Quest system specifications, Meta spokesperson Tyler Yee told Reuters. Financial terms of the deal were not disclosed. The agreement covers only VR devices, Yee said, and Meta will continue working to develop some of its own silicon solutions, end quote. The USB Promoter Group says USB 4 version 2.0 will offer speeds up to 80 Gbps, even if you're using existing 40 Gbps USB-C passive cables, although there are new 80 Gbps USB-C active cables. Quoting The Verge. The actual technical specification from the USB Implementers Forum, which is in charge of the standard itself, hasn't been released yet, but the details coming out today are a little stunning. The promoter group writes in a press release that USB 4 version 2.0 cables will use the USB-C connector, which is to be expected, but the real bombshell is this line, quote, Key characteristics of the updated USB 4 solution include up to 80 Gbps operation based on a new physical layer architecture using existing 40 Gbps USB Type-C passive cables and newly defined 80 Gbps USB Type-C active cables. Joe Balich, a spokesperson for the USB-IF, confirmed that if I were to go out and buy a USB 4 cable right now that was rated for 40 Gbps, it would be able to do twice those speeds in the future. That is, frankly, extremely impressive. USB has always been good about backward compatibility, and USB 4 version 2 is no exception, but being able to use the same cable and still reap the flagship benefit of the new spec is another level. Balich didn't 
explain how that was technically possible, but said that, quote, this benefit was made a requirement when the new specification was developed and the specifics as to how ADG PPS signaling is accomplished will be disclosed once the final specification is released, end quote. That'll apparently be before the USB Dev Days developer events scheduled to happen on November 1st and 2nd in Seattle and November 15th and 16th in Seoul, end quote. Sounds great, right? Except... If you step into the USB-C world at all, as a lot of us are starting to do, you'll discover quite quickly that not all USB-C is USB-C, and there's basically no way to know, by which I mean it's all USB-C, but different flavors. It's very confusing. Quoting Apple Insider, To get those promised 80 gigabit per second speeds, you again need an active cable. At a glance, you can't tell if your USB-C cable is capable of USB 2.0, 3.0, 3.1, USB 3.2, USB 4, or USB 4 version 2.0 speeds. To be clear, this ranges from 480 megabits per second to 80 gigabits per second. And let's not forget the relatively new 240-watt charging maximum from USB-C. This also still needs a cable explicitly rated for it. And with the rest of the specs, forget about being able to figure out what speed or how much power it can carry at a glance. Doing some quick napkin math, today there are about 60 different combinations of USB-C cable when you think about speed, Thunderbolt versus USB, active versus passive, and charging capability. This doesn't include the variants that will pop out as a result of USB 4 version 2.0. At a glance, users will still have no idea what cable they have in the cable boxes, go bags, and cable racks that we all have. We're not asking the USB IF to stop advancing the spec. What we are asking is a sane way that users can tell what is what, and at a glance, to be able to see how much data and power a cable is capable of transmitting, instead of all the guesswork now. And it needs to be enforced instead of just being guidance thrown out into the wind to see where it lands. Users just shouldn't have to guess about it or attach a homemade label to each cable telling us what it's capable of when we've forgotten the specifics a month after we've stored it. Over the years, the spec has expanded so much, I've purchased a cable tester and identifier to be sure that what I've bought is what I got and to guarantee my own labels are accurate, end quote. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID, and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation, where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months, or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com/ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's k o l i d e dot com slash ride collide dot com slash ride. Time for the weekend long read suggestions, beginning with a conversation that is currently going on in this very house. Across the U.S., parents are increasingly buying Apple watches for children as young as five years old because they're using the device as a sort of stopgap cell phone for their kids. Quote. With the watch's cellular abilities, parents can use it to reach and track their children, while the miniature screens mitigate issues like internet addiction. Children and teenagers appear to have become a disproportionately large market for smartwatches as a whole. In a 2020 survey of American teenagers by the investment bank Piper Sandler, 31% said they owned a smartwatch. That same year, 21% of adults in the United States said they owned one, according to the Pew Research Center, end quote. Next, friend of the show Noah Smith has a lengthy interview up with Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin, talks a lot about the merge and other good stuff. Here's just a random quote from the interview. I think crypto does have deep moral narratives, and they were very central to the ecosystem in the 2009 to 2014 era, back when people had no idea whether or not crypto as a sector would even survive. The average crypto person had pretty much no offline crypto social circle, and even legal issues were still uncertain. The conception of crypto as a continuation of a grand cyber libertarian movement and a spiritual successor or sibling of PGP, BitTorrent, Tor, Assange, Snowden, etc. was very strong, and these strong ideals served as the ideological and moral glue that allowed people to make big sacrifices and risks for the space. More recently, the industry has matured, and with that maturity came some degree of dilution. This dilution is good for the mainstream adoption, and indeed, the newer blockchain projects are often intentionally downplaying the weirdness with the goal of targeting mass adoption. NFTs are broadening the appeal of crypto to groups even further from its original user base, end quote. Then Andy Bio delved into the 2.3 billion images used to train Stable Diffusion's image generator, which I told you about yesterday and which I've been using all night. And he found that around 47% of the images used to train the system came from just 100 domains. The largest number, in fact, or 8.5%, came from Pinterest alone. Then, listener of the show, Narit Weiss-Blatt, has a history that is right up my alley, the rise of tech blogs in the mid-2000s. Daring Fireball, Scobalizer, Scripting News, Mashable, TechCrunch, ReadWrite, GigaOM, quote, 
Several of my interviewees describe the importance of tech blogs for startups, especially TechCrunch. The PR professional Brett Weiner, for example, said, Coming out of the dot-com bust, TechCrunch was a seminal publication. We had a lot of good and bad battles with it during those early years. It was very important for startup clients to have a TechCrunch story, specifically since that is how they raised funding. As a result, TechCrunch had a lot of power, end quote. Indeed, I was there, can confirm. There was a period of about three years there where TechCrunch basically ran the valley, not in any sort of making the rules sense, but as a, if it's not happening on TechCrunch, it's not happening at all sense. The days when Mike Arrington's house was the headquarters of the Valley's renaissance, and not just because he let certain folks connected to this show sleep on his couch from time to time. Then real quick, BuzzFeed has a look at the music artist making a mint by creating poop-themed songs so that four-year-olds can ask Alexa to play, you heard me, Poop songs, quote, We did a big songwriting session with these three kids, Helpish said. I said, give me five syllables to start. And the little four-year-old girl screamed, poopy stupid butt. And the next ten minutes were me writing down everything the kids were yelling at me that poopy stupid butt was doing. He added the song to Amazon Music, along with a bunch of other songs co-written by kids from the school. In 2019, Muir needed to pay some medical bills, and the couple was strapped. Helpish did the digital version of checking the couch cushions. He looked at his statement on Amazon Music, something he rarely did since it was only ever a few dollars, and to his shock, his account had several hundred dollars in it, all from the plays of Poopy Stupid Butt, end quote. My kids are aging out of this, but again, based on previous experience as a parent, can confirm. If you had asked Max two years ago what his platonic ideal of a song would be, Poopy Stupid Butt would basically get you most of the way there. And finally, just one review of the new Lord of the Rings show on Amazon. I picked The Verge because they do good reviews of basically everything, but I sampled the new show last night after we did our Twitter space, and I loved it. Definitely at the top of my weekend to-do list. Yes, I need to catch up on House of the Dragon 2 just to stay in the conversation, but I don't know, y'all. When Game of Thrones came out, I had already read the extant books years before, so I was invested. I was all in. But my favorite storylines were always the Starks, and especially the White Walkers. I usually breezed through all of the Targaryen stuff because I didn't care about it as much. So not only is this new show all Targaryen stuff, you know how I have a low tolerance for torture stuff. I just don't know that they can get me invested in new characters when I know going in that they're all just going to die bloody, horrible deaths. I've been down that road once before, don't know if I can do it again, but The Rings of Power, it was just the most gorgeous thing I've seen on screen since at least that most recent Dune movie. And look, a young Galadriel on essentially a vigilante mission? Sign me up. So this weekend, the one bonus episode is the Twitter space we did last night with a bunch of folks turning over the whole creator economy question from all angles, special analysis of Snap and Substack. Come for that. Stay for more conversations about stable diffusion between Chris and I at the end. Reminder, no show on Monday. It is Labor Day here in the U.S., and even though I should be in Miami right now, COVID put the kibosh on that, so even though I shouldn't have done a show today, I ended up doing one, I'm still taking Monday off. 
So the next time I talk to you, it will be Tuesday. See you then.